0: I'm Bob Schieffer. And I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies. And this is the truth of the matter. This is the podcast where we break down the policy issues of the day. Since the politicians are having their
1: say, we will excuse them with respect and bring in the experts, many of them from
0: CSIS, people who have been working these issues for years. No spin, no bombast, no finger pointing, just informed discussion. In today's episode of The Truth of the Matter, I'm flying solo as Bob Schieffer is out of town. To get to the truth of the matter about how South Korea is dealing with COVID-19, I brought on today uh, my colleague Victor Cha, who's the foremost authority in the United States on South Korea and issues of North Korea. Victor, so glad to have you here with us today Uh, remotely. We're both at home in Bethesda, but it's really good to hear your voice. Thanks Andrew, it's great to be on with you. So there's a lot of talk these days about how South Korea is a model response of COVID-19. What's that all about?
1: So I think it is being seen now as a model response, maybe not initially. I mean, it's not like there weren't flaws in the way they responded, but overall I think they're kind of emerging as the case that has really flattened the curve from the outset of the crisis in Korea, which was January 20th. There are under 10,000 cases And they start to slow the rate of infection around the first week of March. And so overall, when you compare it to the United States, where we're headed towards 200,000 cases, or Spain at 87,000. Well, I
0: was going to say, it's interesting. Our first cases were also reported on January 20th, and our ramp up was much, much slower.
1: Yeah, absolutely. They responded early, but they also have the lowest mortality rate of all the COVID-afflicted countries in Asia. Um, And as many people have noted already, they per capita, they tested the most citizens, you know, four to five times what the United States has done. So, you know, President Trump is on TV saying we're going to have a million tests or, you know, whatever he says. But I mean, the fact of the matter is here in the United States, if you want to test, you can't get one unless you, you know, fit into this very small box of people who are able to get a test. And then you have to go out to like RFK Stadium to get it done but in Korea if you want to test not only can you get it but there's a phone app that will take you to the closest place to get a test
0: so the responses have been very different so on the beyond parallel microsite that you have um, for the Korea chair which is also linked to the csis.org website you've shown a timeline that uh, explains how Korea you know was different and then it moved earlier and much more quickly than the United States did and it really that it only took 6 days for South Korea to mobilize. Do you wanna take us through that a bit?
1: Yeah, so we created this timeline. CSIS has done other of these interactive timelines and we thought it would be useful to create one on South Korea's response. We're also building one now on North Korea's response, but we thought it was important to start with South Korea just because there has been you know, now a lot of interest in the South Korean case because it's the only case of uh, you know, a liberal democracy that has succeeded in flattening the curve, you know, using different sorts of efforts to do that, and one that has been pretty transparent in terms of how it's done. It. The only other country that has flattened the curve so far is China, but you know the numbers from China are, are not very reliable. You know they use some pretty illiberal means to do that. In terms of what's distinguished the South Korean case, you know, one of the traits is that it did, as you said, Andrew, move very quickly. They, mo- I mean, they move very early. They had their first detected case which was a traveler from wuhan china where this all started on january 20th and it took them a week for south korean health officials to call this meeting this became this very famous meeting now that was called in a meeting room in a subway station in which the health officials brought together 20 medical companies And basically said, you know, we are on the brink of a pandemic here, and we need everybody to work together to start producing test kits for this new novel coronavirus. And we promise that as you produce these kits, we will promise rapid regulatory approval. So that was a very important thing that differentiated the Korean responses. They moved very early. like They started moving essentially on January 20th when they had their
0: first case. What do you think motivated that? Like, why did they move so quickly and others like us didn't? So I think part of it was their experience with MERS. Uh,
1: So MERS is a Middle East Respiratory Syndrome. You know, this was a respiratory syndrome that came into Korea through Saudi Arabia. And they didn't handle that very well. This was several years ago. They learned from the MERS outbreak that one of the key problems they had was a sparsity of test kits. So similar to the problem we have here today in the United States, which is you can't really get a full view of how bad the problem is because you don't have the test kits. And in Korea, what happened was because they there was a sparsity of test kits, it caused people who were infected by the virus to move from one health facility to another to find a test. And by doing that, they were spreading the disease. So after mayors, the government passed a law that allowed you know, for the expedited approval of testing systems in the event of a health crisis. And this allowed for the quick production and approval of test kits, in this case for COVID-19, that were made according to WHO standards. But, you know, again, like you said, I mean, they moved early and they moved quickly. I mean, they moved very quickly. Nine days after the January 20 case, the government established a national call center so that, uh, you know, trying to increase transparency and awareness about this. And two weeks after the first case, they started producing test kits. You know, again, they placed a premium on moving early
0: and moving quickly. So President Trump's been talking about our companies, Walmart, CVS, and others pitching in. You mentioned Korea called in companies in the subway meeting early on. Did they call on their industries to help pitch in right away?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that they focused on was building these public-private sector partnerships. The health agencies and officials knew that they obviously could not handle this on their own. And so, you know, they called in these 20 medical companies on January 27th, seven days after the first case, and then continued to work with these private sector companies to reduce regulatory red tape, you know, to expedite as best they could the production of test kits and it's been very successful. Four major companies were the ones who started producing these test kits. They innovated the test kits. They were able to reduce the amount of time it took to get a reading from the test kits for uh, subjects who are being tested. And now, you know, South Korea is exporting these test kits to the United States, to UAE, uh, and to other countries
0: yeah, are we getting enough of these test kits from Korea? Do we ask early enough? You know, what's what's the deal with that?
1: You know, the, the thing that strikes me overall about the response, even though Korea is seen as a model, but of all the countries, you know, all whatever it is, 100 plus countries is there hasn't been a lot of cooperation across borders. And so if you look at a case like Korea, you would expect that Korea, the United States and Japan, the three allies, would be taking more of a multilateral view on this, you know, pooling resources and right. uh, and things, but we're not seeing that at all. And I think largely because the United States is not showing leadership, we're not seeing that at all. You know, I think the United States finally asked for the exported test kits and Korea's being willing to do that, but you know, unfortunately it came quite late in the process. It's something that probably if Korea was one of the first to produce these test kits and they're, they're working reasonably well, then We should have been cooperating with them much earlier to boost the number of test kits we have available in the U.S.
0: You know, as Korea's top ally, though, is the United States now that the United States has asked, are we getting priority in the exports that Korea is doing?
1: Yeah. I mean, I so I think the answer to that is yes. Initially, Korea announced that they were going to send, you know, hundreds of thousands of test kits to UAE because they're considered a strategic partner of South Korea for commerce and for energy reasons. But then when the U.S. request came through, the South Koreans said that they would prioritize the U.S. request, which is, you know, again, a good thing to see, but it still happened
0: way too late. Now, on the technical side, South Korea seems to have set the standard on this type of drive through test that would be really good for the United States. What's the drive through test that they created?
1: So they did things that I think were really interesting in terms of innovation. But as I explain this to your listeners, these are innovations, but they're not like super technical, high-tech innovations. They're very interesting, common-sense innovations. You know, one of these is that instead of having all these people lining up, For a test, you know, in a hallway where they could be passing stuff to each other, you know, Korea set up these drive through test centers. The first one was set up at a university. It was set up, I think, quite early within the first week of uh, the first known case in Korea. So they set up the first one at this small university in Korea. In the end, they set up over 600 of these drive through test centers. They're free, you don't need to have a uh, referral from your physician. You don't need to have been someone who's been in contact with a COVID positive person. You don't need to be someone who came from a level three country. I mean, they're just free. You can go and you can do it. They conducted over 10,000 tests per day from these uh, centers. And I think that number increased even more as the crisis wore on. And then you go and you get your test and then you receive a text on your phone within a few hours, which had the results. Within a few hours. Yeah, within a few hours. The other common sense, non-high-tech innovation that the Koreans came up with was something called DS sites, designated sites. Essentially what they did was that they designated which facilities, hospital facilities in the country were ready to handle COVID cases and which ones would be designated as non-COVID sites that would handle everything else. So if you had a broken leg or something, you would go to one facility. If you thought you had COVID, you would go to another facility. They made all this information available on a phone app, and this prevented unnecessary spread as non-COVID Uh, patients would not end up mixing with COVID patients. They even went to the extent of putting big signs on the front of hospitals saying, this is a DS site, designated site for COVID. This is a non-DS site. And they would have somebody standing out there in a hazmat suit basically directing people, you know, if they showed up with a broken elbow, They would say, you should go to this non-DS site, or you should go to, if you have COVID, you think you have COVID, you can go into this site. So it was a very simple innovation, but it was extremely efficient, uh, and again, speaks to the level of organization and transparency that Korea made in terms of its response. And then the third innovation, which was admittedly more high tech, was essentially they created a phone app that would allow the citizens to track covid positive patients and so the phone app would actually tell you that you are within 100 meters of a location where a covid positive patient had just walked through there clearly are privacy issues i mean they were these were done anonymously there's still privacy issues with something like this but it was another innovation that led to greater transparency and self-awareness for citizens of Korea of where they were walking and what potential dangers they could be walking into.
0: So is pretty much anybody who wants to be or needs to be tested in South Korea getting tested?
1: Yeah, basically. And anybody who's coming into South Korea are being tested at the airport. So again, like, we could look at the absolute number of tests, and they're much higher in the United States than they are in South Korea, the absolute number. But the key point is if you want a test, can you get one? Right? Yeah. And right now, here in the US, if you want a test, like if you and I want a test, we can't get one because we don't fit into whatever category you know, or we're not like an NBA superstar or something. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> but there, you know, if you want tests, test, you can get one. And so to me, that's the most important metric. It's not how many you're giving, but if like you want one, can you get one?
0: This may be a really dumb question, but it would seem that this is just a simple matter at this point for the United States of math and mass production. If these tests are working in South Korea, and we can put money towards mass producing these tests and getting them here and they work and they're reliable and the results come within a matter of hours and they're electronic and people can sit in their cars and mind their own business and not spread the disease while they're being tested. What's the holdup?
1: Well, I mean, I think one of the problems, and this is also what makes Korea a different case and is that, you know, I think part of the holdup is that in the United States, we have this, you could call it a tension, you could call it a gap between, you know, federal responsibility and state responsibility and city responsibility. Whereas in Korea, this was, you know, from the beginning entirely a national response. It was organized in scope and in execution at the national level. And I think that, you know, that made for a very much more organized response. Whereas in the United States, you know, there's Administration says the federal government is in a supporting role, and that, you know, it's states like we just saw in, you know, in the DMV area, it's the governors of the states that are sort of announcing these mandatory stay at home orders. Obviously, they're different systems, but in Korea, the focus is really on responding and organizing in a national way.
0: Are there any of our governors that are negotiating directly with the Koreans at this point?
1: It's a good question. I don't know the answer to that. I know that. Pompeo and former Mr. Kong talked about cooperation and whether that's being left at the federal level and then they will distribute to the states. But I don't know if governors themselves have reached out to, to South
0: Korea. All right. Now I have to ask you, what about North Korea? They're testing missiles again. Are they doing this to distract from COVID 19 in their own country?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of focus has been on South Korea, but, you know, North Korea is also a concern here. Uh, You know, the joke in sort of the Korea expert community, for truth of the matter audience, it may seem a little bit off color. But the joke is that, you know, in South Korea, they're exporting test kits and in North Korea, they're exporting ballistic missile tests. Yeah,
0: (laughs) yeah. I think our audience will give you some leeway on that one. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. All right. So
1: they say they have no cases of COVID, which is, you know, very hard to believe, given that this is a country that sits between, as my colleague Zuteri wrote in the post a couple of weeks ago, this country sits between the two of the First outbreak countries in Asia. Right. Right. The South Korea and China. And of course, there is a unique transmission vector through China, which is about the only country that North Korea trades with and allows cross border traffic with. So it's hard to believe that there are no cases. And the consequences are real because this is a, a country that has absolutely no health infrastructure to speak of. And there's a real danger that it could do some serious damage in the country. Now, North Korea, the government has said they've quarantined about 10,000 people, but they say they have no cases. Then again, you can't really believe what the government says.
0: So how are we trying to find out about what's going on inside of North Korea?
1: So it's largely through places like the UNICEF, UNICEF, the World Health Organization, humanitarian NGOs. We know that there is some testing for COVID-19 that's finally underway in North Korea. Um, Materials are getting in, but the volume of testing is unknown. And of course, the volume of testing is about the only thing that we have to determine the scope of the problem or even how to address the spread in these countries, uh, since we have no other vaccines or therapeutics at this point. We know that some testing is underway, but the volume is unclear.
0: How big of a problem is it going to be if we don't know what's going on in North Korea?
1: It's a real problem because if there is an outbreak of COVID-19, for example, in the capital city of Pyongyang, again, with the absence of any real health infrastructure, ICU beds, these sorts of things, it's going to spread pretty rapidly and people are going to die pretty quickly. That could really have an effect on the regime's overall coherence. You know, North Korea has reached out to the NGO community for humanitarian assistance as this was all starting to ramp up. And it appears that supplies are coming across the land border between China and North Korea. So the stuff gets flown in to China and then goes over land into North Korea. But nobody has any sense of how bad it is. We are trying with commercial satellite imagery to see if we can see anything around sort of hospitals or you know, to be even more gruesome crematories, things of that nature, uh, to see if we can get any sense of what's going on, but
0: it, it's it's a black box. Do we see supplies, the normal supply chains, coming in and out through rail from China to North Korea?
1: So not not that much. What we used to do is we used to count the trucks and rail cars at the customs area between the Dandong, Shinoiju border. Right. But, uh, I, you know, I think a lot of it is coming over land by truck. But there's a real backup apparently because of quarantine requirements on both sides of the border. Um, so North Korea has to, wants to quarantine anything that comes. So any supplies, even that get into the country will be quarantined for 12 days to two weeks because of concerns that it may be, they may be contaminated by the virus. So the process is already slow in terms of getting this assistance into North Korea, and it will be slowed even
0: further. So the chances are that starvation and other problems like that could continue to get worse in North Korea as this crisis continues and as North Korea continues to claim that there's nothing going on there.
1: Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, here in the United States, we face this crisis among a population that is generally well-fed, has had the full regimen of vaccines and things like that. You know, in in North Korea, you're talking about a population that is still suffering from one to two million metric ton food shortage every year, uh, has no health vaccine infrastructure to speak of, already has uh, a number of the population afflicted by different diseases that have been eradicated pretty much everywhere else around the world like drug-resistant strains of tuberculosis. Um, So it is already... A vulnerable population. We talk about people with pre existing conditions and people over the age of 60 or 70 to be vulnerable and compromised. You could say that about the entire North Korean population of 22 million people. And so this is a population, again, that if this virus were there, could do some really horrible
0: damage. Do you expect that the missile tests will continue and maybe pick up in intensity?
1: Yeah, unfortunately, I do. You know, we have um, some CSIS databases that look at North Korean tests with regard to two factors. One is in the absence of any working diplomacy with the United States. The point there being that when we are in prolonged periods of non-dialogue between the United States and North Korea, they are more prone to do uh, missile and nuclear testing. And then the other is uh, the relationship with the US elections. In years when we have midterm or presidential elections, North Korea always also tends to ramp up testing in those years. And so we are not in diplomacy with North Korea right now. In fact, very most recently, North Korean spokesperson said that they were upset at remarks that Secretary of State Pompeo made about continuing sanctions on North Korea, that they were not interested in negotiation anymore and that even a good relationship between the two leaders was not enough to change U.S. hostile policy. I'm just quoting what the North Greens have said. Um, so you have that, the absence of diplomacy, and as we all know, we have an election in the United States this year. So those two things lead us to believe that, you know, absent some heroic leader-to-leader diplomacy that Trump will pull off a fourth meeting with his good friend Kim, which I don't think is very likely at this point, um, we should expect to see more testing by North Korea.
0: Victor, thank you for helping us get to the truth of the matter today about South Korea and about what we know, what little we know about what's going on in North Korea.
1: It's my pleasure. Thanks, Andrew.